From third-generation real estate attorney and New York Press Club award-winning podcaster, Hal Coopersmith, this is Broker's Angle. Welcome to Broker's Angle. I'm Hal Coopersmith. We have a great episode for you where we give you pointers about doing a deal in Soho. And our 30-minute or less interview is with Susan Penzer and Nathan Stange of Susan Penzer Real Estate, who say some great things, including this. So in the early days, I moved Dean and DeLuca to Broadway, which changed the face of Broadway. So that, I think, is a real – I mean, I'm very proud of that. And uh, things have changed, as we know, with Dean and DeLuca. But they had a really great run. And that store really, really changed Soho. There was nothing there. But first, Broker's Angle is sponsored by the law firm of Coopersmith & Coopersmith, a boutique real estate law firm specializing in commercial and residential real estate for over 87 years. This, of course – is attorney advertising, so we are obligated to say prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. But Hal, I think you've already outclassed all your predecessors. That is very kind of you to say, Richard. So we are going to be speaking with Nathan Stange and Susan Penzer of Susan Penzer Real Estate. They do a lot of work in Soho. We cover a lot of that in our interview. So I figured it would be a good idea to talk about the complications of doing a deal in Soho. Richard, let's start with zoning. What should a broker know about Soho? Well, Hal, there is a big mismatch between the neighborhood you see today and its intended uses according to zoning regulations. Soho should be solely occupied by light manufacturing firms, office tenants, and artists. And ground floor retail is not permitted as of right in Soho. Well, you said a big one there. Ground floor retail is not permitted as of right in Soho. If anyone walks around Soho, they're going to see a lot of stores. How do we have so many stores there? Well, in order for a store to exist in Soho, it needs to be grandfathered in. And it accomplishes that by meeting three specified requirements. So without going into all those requirements, because it does get complicated very quickly, for large establishments that are over 10,000 square feet, I think it's important for brokers to know that they need to get a variance if they don't fall under a certain use group. Yes, and while office and retail are permitted above the ground floor, it does get complicated very quickly. So when doing a deal in Soho, it is always advisable to make sure you have the right permitted use. That's a great note to go to our interview with Susan Penzner and Nathan Stange of Susan Penzner Real Estate. So if someone Googles you, a New York Times article comes up, location, location, fashion. Could you tell us a little bit about that? I can tell you that it's true, location, location, location. Um, yeah, I'm really proud of that article. That was like a really great time because it was the Yves Saint Laurent men's store. I met Mr. Berger through a recommendation, which was an incredible experience. And um, we put Saint Laurent men on Worcester Street. And it was it was great. Velvet suits and all. So that's one of the peak being in the New York Times. How did you get started in the business? I got started in the business. Well, I always loved architecture. And I was on my own at a very young age, so I was looking for an apartment, and I knew where I wanted to live. Uh, on the Upper East Side, I, you know, I should have gone to the village, but I wanted to be on the Upper East Side in the 60s, and uh, it was comfortable, and I was familiar with it. And I loved townhouses. And I walked around, and I looked at a zillion apartments. And I, in those days, 
I mean, there was no, you know, there was no Street Easy. There was no Google. <laughs> there were no cell phones. And I met some brokers who had the keys to apartments, or agents. And um, I knew more than they did about what was going on. And this one guy, I, I, after four flights of stairs or six flights of stairs or something, you know, we were talking and I... Uh, and he said, listen, you should meet, really meet in-town realty. The guy's name was Steve Townsend or something. And you should meet him. I think you should come work in real estate. And I was in, I, my dream was fashion. So back to fashion through real estate. And um, I started working for him. I started showing apartments. And then I decided that I really couldn't work for anyone. So from um, Townsend Realty, I created a company called In-Town Realty because my, you know, my idol was this woman called Pat Palmer. She was the woman. She was the queen of townhouses, and she had a townhouse on 67th, and I opened, like, across the street from her. And I did it with a friend, a gentleman who was a broker who would, you know, helped help me get started. I didn't even have my broker's license at the time. And I had a gorgeous office, and that was the beginning. And then from the beginning, how did you work your way into the fashion world and doing deals for fashion clients? Everything is people I knew and things that interested me. So it was all social related and it was all a recommendation and I like real estate because I like architecture and I like people and I like interesting people and I like to put them together and that so I never really went looking for just customers you weren't looking for customers well I was looking I wanted to do deals and I wanted to work with people but you know I wouldn't sit in an office and wait for a phone to ring and take a stranger so from there how did you grow the business well well my office at the time was in a great location and I had people working with me who knew people. So it started with friends of friends and an introduction to a young man whose father was a developer. So we got his apartments to rent. Um, we had filmmakers that were friends with people. who it, it, just, it just snowballed into interesting people. And my next door neighbor was somebody called John Gibson, who was an art dealer, who had this really interesting space. We were in this huge, interesting townhouse. And he represented, you know, Mark DeSuvero and Dennis Oppenheim and all the and these interesting people would come in to his space and we were next door and we'd have coffee and I started learning more about conceptual art and it just opened up the art world to me a little bit more, even though I studied and loved art history. And I later worked for an art magazine in between. And then you brought on Nathan. Uh okay, well, from the sixties to um yeah, from the sixties to two thousand three. I was, I've been in Soho for, well, through publishing, working in art magazines, and then I, you know, had, like, come and gone back into real estate, and I had wound up in Soho, and, uh, yeah, we had an office, and, and, and Nathan was introduced to me, and it was, like, I think, the, to me, I don't know, Nathan, perfect pairing, because Nathan is really methodical, he, people adore him, um, he's so thorough, and um, we're a good balance for each other, you know, like, I he reads the entire lease. You know, he does all the numbers. He's the logical one that says, Are you sure you want to say that? And Nathan, how did you get into the business? Uh, I, I moved to New York, as Susan mentioned, in 2003. I, I was actually, yeah, you mentioned you mentioned publishing, but you didn't get into your publishing experience. But I moved to New York thinking I was going to be in publishing. I, I was an English major. Uh, my, my poetry editor for the magazine that I worked on in college was working with Susan as her uh, as her executive assistant. And so I you know, came came here with starry eyes thinking I was going to you know, go into the uh, 
exciting world of New York publishing. And I got here and started speaking with, you know, meeting with friends who had been in it for about a year or two. And I was just like, oh man, this is depressing. I mean, that was at the beginning of the, not, you know, we still have books, you know, a few are published. Uh, most of them are electronic, but it was, it was not what I thought it was going to be. And, and uh, in the meantime, yeah, my, my, my friend from college, uh, was like, look, do you, you know, we're, we're looking for somebody to help out around the office. And April. So, April. And, uh, so I, I came in and, you know, that was that. And I think Susan, I, I, what do I remember Susan asking? I, I remember being asked what my sign was and I remember being asked like, you know, like what, it was nothing about real estate. It was all about, you know, like literature. And I don't know if we touched on art, but yeah, it was just like, it, it seemed like a really cool office and it was in the middle of Soho and, you know, just, it was like walking into a, I don't know, it's like walking into something really amazing. So. Well, it's perfect because like, who would else hire an assistant who was a poet? <laughs> I mean, the minute I read that she was a poet at Columbia, I was like, okay, I'm hiring this assistant. And then from that, it, it, there was Nathan. So, I mean, it was just, a perf- it was perfect. And so what's the focus of Susan Pensner Real Estate, the two of you right now? Well, from my perspective, it's commercial real estate, you know, office leasing, retail, and you know, showrooms and galleries. Of course, yeah, we we work with a lot of galleries, fashion, design oriented tenants, um, you know, wherever that takes us. But primarily, downtown, Upper East Side, Upper East Side for fashion, basically. I still hung on to my residential contacts, and so you know, it, we're a boutique, so we're, we're about people. So I still do residential, which is really odd for a commercial company. Um, but they're mostly referrals. And, you know, a townhouse here, a loft there. I, I was a loft expert when I, for a, a short time, I was at Sinvin Realty, and I created a residential department for them, and I created management for them, which was incredible because when I left, those buildings followed us. And, and today, Nathan is the exclusive agent for 134 Spring Street, and we have amazing tenants that go in there, and he handles that himself. And, you know, it paved, management also paves the way for exclusives, which has been, which has been great for us. Yeah, and, and you know, a lot of long-term relationships. I mean, was, you know, you've know, you already said when you started, but that building, I mean, 134 came into your life when? I mean, you, you were working on it late 90s, early 2000s? Yeah, yeah. So it, it's just... Early 90s, maybe. And before that, we had the building that uh, Knoll Furniture was in. So I developed that building with, with the developer, sold all the lofts above it. Knoll was the co-developer, and they had three floors. Um, and that was exciting at the time, because that was the, one of the first condos in Soho. Where is that located? 111 uh, Worcester Street. And the one before that was on West Broadway. So there were very few condos at the time. And one of the things that the New York Times article mentions is this wonderful quote about how you're able to match people and places. What's your technique for that? I think it's my interest in architecture and space and having an understanding of the customer's needs and communication. I mean, I, I, I think they choose – I would say the customers want to work with us because we have taste and because we understand space as opposed to – it's not like renting 100,000 square feet of office space to attorneys. I mean, that is not the same as walking into a historic building, seeing the potential of how the brand can be recognized in relationship to the space. And so what do you think that you see in spaces that other people are missing? How are you able to... Well, I can't say they're really missing it, but maybe their interests aren't the same and they would you know, rather do miles and miles of space. Um, I, it speaks to me because actually... 
had I finished college and had I really thought about it, I would have won. I would have been two things, an art dealer or an architect. And my father, who was a Russian immigrant, was a frustrated architect. And even though he didn't have a license, I mean, he, I would come home in my house, you know, the wall would be out because he'd have an idea. Or he designed a, an totally beautiful modern house for our neighbors and got it built. I mean, my father was an architect at heart. He, and he, um, I learned a lot from him. I mean, weekends we used to go look at houses. He had a vision. And I think that everything I do is, I'm very visual. It's visceral for me. And so you touched on this a little bit, but who have been your main clients and what's been your main focus as your business? So I can say that Paul Smith is one of our most important and most interesting clients. And Nathan and I have worked together on that. And we are still working with Paul Smith. We sold him the building at 142 Green Street. I worked with Paul across the country in San Francisco, uh, L.A., touched on Chicago a bit, but we still have a strong relationship. So I think, I think Paul's one of our most important clients. And, and Nathan is right. You know, we're partners on that. And selling him the building was very interesting because we looked at space for a very long time. And, uh, and this building was fantastic. After he bought the building, he had built this incredible store on the ground floor. And then they had offices on the second floor, but then the upper floors we had to lease. And I knew those upper floors because the ground floor used to be Castelli Gallery. There were Richard Serra sculptures in there. You know, there, be, before that, there was another gallery in there. So I go back in the art world to the 60s. And the 70s was when Soho really started. And um, so I, I just, I knew the building and I knew the volume of space and the height of the ceilings and the arch windows and the upstairs. And I just was so excited when it came on. I mean, I like, called him immediately. Yeah, it was such a special building too. I mean, it, it, you can't find another building like that, really. There are very few in, in Soho. Also, I mean, Paul has a vision. Paul wrote a book and it's, I mean, it's perfect. The cover of the book is, the title of the book is, there's inspiration in everything. And if you don't see it at first, look again. So we're, we were like a, Match made in heaven. Oh, and Susan, and but then your history in the art world, right? You were able to to use your contacts to go back to all the galleries that had had shows, and so this, as an opening, as a gift, uh, when the building sold and they were opening, Susan was able to give all the the uh, what are the catalogs, catalogs yeah. exhibition catalogs yeah. to Paul, and he was thrilled because he collects, he loves art, and he started out selling art before he sold clothes. And so, a lot of your business is in the art fashion world. What are the art galleries? fashion tenants looking for? And how are you able to appeal to those clients? Well, fashion is location, location, location. And whether it's uptown or downtown, like now the 70s is really important because people who have their pro- who have their, their clothing or accessories in, well, I can't say Barney's anymore, but Bergdorf's and uptown stores, I mean, they would probably would rather be away from the 60s and in the 70s. And also, there's more activity in the 70s because people are there. They go out shopping three times a day. There's four generations of women shopping, you know, and, and hanging out in Santa Rose or whatever. And so I think Madison's really important. But I think if you want to reach a younger and more hip hop and tourist, and it's a mixture of everything, they want to be in Soho as well or the meatpacking. So it's, again, location, location, location for fashion. I think for art, I think in the art world, I think the art world makes the location. It's like either the artists go there first and the dealers follow, or and then the dealers made Chelsea because Soho became so inundated with fashion 
that the galleries wanted to get out. I mean, they didn't. They had to hide guards. People were coming in. They didn't know they were looking at art. They didn't know what they were looking at. So their dealers like, I'm out of here. And the good news there was we knew the dealers. So like when Anina Nose, who was one of the early galleries to move to Soho, I'm sorry, to Chelsea, I had the listing for her space because a lot of the dealers owned their ground floors in Soho. And I was able to just immediately go to Joel Isaacs, who worked with Prada, and say to Joel, I have this space. And he said, great, I have Miu Miu. And it's also about having relationships and knowing who other brokers are working with and being able to pick up the phone and just knowing them. I think experiential is also very important. That This is you know, what fashion is looking for. Yeah, people are looking for a specific experience in New York or, or in Soho that they can't find elsewhere. You know, for, for instance, my parents were in town recently, my father and my stepmother. And my stepmother was sharing that you know, she has this Chanel bag from the 70s. And you know, she went to the store where she lives. And you know, well, we can take it. We can send it away. We can get it fixed. She came here. She went into the store you know, by chance this past weekend. Oh, well, we, you know, there's the guy right there who does the leather working, who could work on it you know, while she waited, had she brought her bag. It, it gives a taste of the brand. It's, it's why people, why brands are why it's important that brands are in New York to put their best foot forward and really showcase. It's you know, For years, there was this idea that you know every location was a flagship location. There's a paring down of that now, but you know within Soho, that this is where you need to have your flagship location. Susan, you alluded to this with Paul Smith, but any noteworthy deals that you've worked on? So in the early days, I moved Dean and DeLuca to Broadway, which changed the face of Broadway. So that, I think, is a real... I mean, I'm very proud of that and... Uh, things have changed, as we know, with Nina DeLuca, but they had a really great run. And that store really, really changed Soho. There was nothing there. So how did you sell them on that? How did you sell them on going to Broadway? Space. Space. I knew the people, the three owners of Giorgio and, and Joel very well and Jack. and Because I was a customer. I mean, I because he had the cheese store and it was incredible. And we became friends and over food. And when they started looking, we looked everywhere, and nobody wanted to go to Broadway. But Jack, who was the industrial designer, and in the, I called up Jack and I said, "Listen, there's a space on Broadway. It has like 20 foot ceilings. It has the most gorgeous columns. You can't see it. There's an Army Navy surplus store in there, and the stuff is piled up. There are boxes covering 10,000 square feet with mezzanines, with more boxes. But this space is so beautiful. Come see it." So he came and he saw it and he said, you're absolutely right. And it was it had a sub-basement and a basement and it was incredible, 10,000 feet on the corner. And he said, I'm going to get Giorgio right now. And that was it. I mean, they were like, we never thought of going to Broadway, but how could we ever get a space like this? It was absolutely spectacular because that part of Broadway was, they were department stores. There was like, a, you know, it started, there was an opera house I don't know which corner, not that one, but the next corner up, there was an opera house, there were department stores, and then they kept moving up. And later, there's John Wanamaker was in Sixth Avenue. But those are the same style buildings that you see on Sixth Avenue in the 20s. Um, this was just, a, it was, it was this, there you go, it was the space, and they knew what to do with it. They knew, knew how to make a food gallery out of it. It was, it was a miraculous transformation. So I want to Dig in that a little bit more because you talked about all the boxes and how no one was on Broadway. How did you visualize the space where it was completely different and completely barren for that use and then sell someone on that vision that you're seeing and translate that to someone else? Well, first of all, I knew the people involved had vision. 
so it was a natural. It was just a natural fit for us to work together because I was looking for that space that would blow their minds, and I found it. And uh, I, I, I mean, Jack Chigalik has the most amazing eye and the most incredible. I mean, he is the the look, he created the look and the brand of Dean and DeLuca. Joel was the business person and. Giorgio was the food person, and so it was just such a perfect combination of people. And, you know, Joel used to be in publishing, so everybody had a lot of integrity, a lot of taste. They cared. They knew about architecture. They traveled around the world. They could relate the, you know, the Italianite architecture because the cast iron was made in Italy and sent over and added on to these buildings. And Nathan, a noteworthy deal that you've worked on. So probably one of the more interesting deals I've been in – from a personal standpoint, just because you know, I think on every deal there is something to learn. Um, you know, in this case, it was sometimes giving up what is most, what seems the most important, is really the key to to actualizing you know, the next step. In this case, it was Rick Owens, who I had worked with in a building and helped grow within a building. You know, starting in a sh- small but amazing showroom space on the top floor in a space that hadn't been touched in 70 years. You know, it, it exposed ceilings, exposed rafters, exposed brick with, with the plaster on the walls that had been there. It, just very special space for a brand who, who could appreciate it. Um, the rest of the building had been completely redone in a modern style, and this was just this little jewel that was left for them when we found it. You know, 15 years ago, uh, it had been a ladder company for 70 years. And, you know, there were still ladders piled up to the ceilings uh, from floors to rafters. Like, I, th- I think the count was something like, you know, 5,000 ladders on the floor when we first toured it. It was in- insane. And uh, but the lesson that I learned is, you know, we were we in a situation where there were new owners in the building. Uh, Rick Owens was ensconced in the building. Uh, Rick Owens really needed to grow um, and, and couldn't figure out a way to make that work. Um, the new owners really wanted their space and, you know, there, there wasn't, there wasn't a way to make things happen initially. And, and we talked, we were in discussions for over a year. It had been put to bed. We didn't think that there was going to be a way forward. And then, you know, the, the president of, of the company who, of the, of Rick Owens, who I admire a lot, Eventually, she just she came to the decision. You know, I, you have to give up the space. You have to give up the space that had been so important to the brand for so long. The takeaway being that yeah, you know, sometimes you need to give up what is most important to you in order to get what you want. And one thing that people may not know about you is that you're in a book. So I, there's there's a. <laughs> I got a phone call one day. This is quite a while ago. Really, quite a while ago. I got a phone call one day from a woman who was. Um, soliciting people to contribute to a book. She was representing the publisher. Um, The book was about the real estate world and advice and what advice you would give. And I don't know why she chose me because there were developers in it and very established brokers. And But everybody got a few pages. I think mine was was really, as Nathan pointed out, kind of long. I think it was, yeah, pages. My subject was integrity which is really ironic because the book, in the end, was a Donald Trump book with a picture of him on the cover, to my chagrin, about advice from real estate people to real estate people. So, again, mine was integrity. That's all I can say. And, of course, at a certain point, I tried to buy every book to get it off the shelves because I was in it. (laughs) Um, I'll have one for you. And give it out to people. Buy it off the shelves and give it out. Take the cover off and give it out, yeah. 
nowadays. Yeah, hide it. It's hidden. But it was fun to write it. It was fun to think of what's important to me and what is important to me is integrity. And if I were giving people advice, I would say, I think integrity is really, really important. But you can shortchange yourself by being included in the book. But there are a lot of big name, big real estate names in that. Uh, yeah, it was interesting to be included in it. Yes. <laughs> It's history. <laughs> and people don't like saying nice things about themselves. So I'm going to ask you each to say something nice about the other. I'll start with Susan. I can't do a deal with that, Nathan. I mean, speaking of integrity, Nathan has patience. He has integrity. Uh, he's smart. I think he should have gone to law school because he can read Well, he can read a lease. And he picks it apart and he make, he's protective of everyone. He's protective of his clients. He can pick up the phone and talk to attorneys about clauses in the lease. I don't. I think a lot of brokers just do a deal and they pass it on and they don't care what happens. And I think that we just share so much in the office. I mean, I feel like we're family. I we can count on each other for even you know things that are less about real estate. You know, I've watched Nathan grow and I think I'm really fortunate. Same question for Nathan. Uh, thank you, Susan. Uh, I'll, I'll follow up on that with. I think. One of the things I admire most about Susan is just is how much she cares about people, both in business and you know her clients, where she she really gets a sense of what is important to people and how she can help make that happen, even if they don't necessarily know what's best for them. And then also, you know, with your with your philanthropy, I mean, Susan's involved in a lot of in a lot of causes that are very important to her. Impact Repertory Theater. Thank you. Impact Repertory Theater. You sell it in Harlem. Yeah, and and that's I mean that's you know that uh, at the end of the day that I think that's what is most important in this business. It's people. It's your relationship it, it, with other people. It's how you treat people is is important, and that's how you have a long career. And there are a lot of brokers out there who are pro- probably pitching the same spaces that you are, uh, same clients as you are, but you have won them over. What makes Susan Penzer Real Estate different? Sometimes we don't win them all because, I mean, we are small. And I think it's it's really about relationships. But there are people who want the suits, as I call them, you know, and we don't have that. Um, I mean, we have suits, I guess, from Paul Smith. <laughs> but um, <laughs> personalities, it's just, I mean, it's it's making, it's having those relationships, you know. I mean, I have, I mean, my favorite deal not too long ago, is 909 Madison. Can I mention that? Absolutely. Which was a really prominent art, art dealer who I have such incredible respect for. And we, we worked together for almost five years. Did she want a smaller space? Did she want a larger space? She was leaving a very important gallery. And it, was, it just had to be right. And this is, again, about taste. It's just like finding the space where you walk in and the person goes, this is the space. And that's another one of those challenges that I love. And And this was more space than she originally needed. And it was the most beautiful brick and limestone building on the corner of 73rd and Madison. I mean, it used to be the Bank of America, which, you know, not the Bank of America. Let me stop right there. It was the Bank of New York. And then it became like Citibank or something. But it was the Bank of New York. It was this elegant townhouse. But it came on the market and there was a pop-up in there. And, it was, and I said to her, you know, you just go in there, try on a pair of jeans. Um, look at the space and if you love it we'll get a tour and we got that there was a safe downstairs like gigantic I mean it was like $300,000 to get the safe out because we needed the space and she shared it with another dealer in the beginning and then took over the whole space and it's it was a long hard deal to make and Friedland was amazing they owned the building um 
But there were phone calls in the middle of the night. There were phone calls from Paris. There were phone calls like, what, you know, what's going on here? And, and is someone else taking this space? And it was really a frantic, frantic time to get this to get this done. And, and I live like on that block. And so every time I walk out on the corner and I see that building, I'm, I have a lot of pride. And so that's a wonderful note to wrap things up on. But I want to ask this to all guests. One piece of advice you'd give to other brokers. Let's start with you, Nathan. Well, I, I, it's, you have to be honest to your clients, right? Good news, bad news. You ha- you have to lay it out there, and it's it's just easier to put it out there sooner than later. And you, Susan? I'm not so good about this. I mean, as I, I think, as I said, integrity is really important. Dealing with fellow brokers, I really don't know how to advise people to work with their own customers and landlords that they represent. Um, but I think it's just the courtesy, and I think the working together broker to broker, when one is representing the space and one is representing the tenant, I think you just need that synergy where you're really working together. Well, Nathan Stange, Susan Penzer, thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for asking us. So that wraps up our interview with Nathan Stange and Susan Penzer. For more, visit brokersangle.com or follow us on social media at brokersangle. And please feel free to email us at angle at brokersangle.com.